0: Pain Talk, a podcast for patients living with pain and those that care for them. Now here's your host, palliative
1: and emergency care physician, Dr. Maureen Allen. Hello, everyone. I want to welcome Dr. Mike Sangster, who has kindly agreed to be interviewed for our podcast, Pain Talk. Dr. Sangster is a member of the Pediatric Chronic Pain Team at the Children's Hospital in Nova Scotia. So Mike, the most important question I'm going to ask you, what every Nova Scotian wants to know... Is your power on yet?
0: Uh, yes, the power came back uh, uh, in the wee hours of Monday morning. Thankfully, so uh, enabled me a, a, a hot shower
1: before coming to work oh, on, that's so uh, cool. on Monday morning. Yeah, we, so, just, uh, we we just got ours last night.
0: Yeah, it, uh, and uh, it's. Uh, um fascinating to me that uh, 80% of the province was without power, so uh, largest power outage in Nova Scotia power's history, apparently.
1: So, Yeah, so for, for our listeners that are not in Nova Scotia, is that uh, Nova Scotia experienced a Category 2 hurricane, Hurricane Doran. About five days ago, and over, yeah, about 80% of people were out without power, and it was quite significant. Uh, nowhere near as catastrophic, obviously, as the Bahamas, but still sobering and eye opening regarding its power and impact. And when you're an island sort of jutting out, I guess we're a peninsula, aren't we? Jutting out into the ocean, it's just like, woof. Pretty scary. So tell a little, a little bit of, uh, about yourself, uh, where you're from, why you choose physiotherapy, or did it choose you? So if you could give us a little bit of that information.
0: Sure. I uh, work as uh, one of the physiotherapists on the complex pain team at the IDBKL Center, which is the uh, the region's uh, women's and Children's Hospital. And uh, I've worked on the complex pain team for about fifteen years now. Uh, I'm a physiotherapist. And uh, I have uh, training uh, um, on two levels. Uh, My entry level training is a a bachelor's of uh, physiotherapy from Dalhousie University here in Halifax. And uh, then I went on to do a uh, doctoral program at Utica College in uh, in the United States. So I have both a US trained perspective and a uh, a canadian uh, uh, trained perspective so it uh, provides me a, a, an interesting view if you will of, uh, of the work that i do i work primarily with um, adolescents so uh, our complex pain team although uh, we are a pediatric uh, you know based institution uh, often people think that uh, means i work with uh, with little children we do do that uh, sometimes but uh, the majority of our patients are are adolescent, teenaged uh, patients. So uh, where I'm from, I guess, which is uh, one of the things you asked me, is um, I'm uh, originally born in New Brunswick, but grew up in the Annapolis Valley, beautiful Annapolis Valley, about an hour outside of Halifax, but uh, call Halifax my home now. And um, in terms of my choice of physiotherapy, um, I have a, what I would call my path of inefficiency towards uh, getting to physiotherapy. I actually started my career as a management consultant and uh, 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 training in uh, in business, so I did a master's of business administration. Began in consulting, and um, and that really didn't have the meaning uh, that uh, that I was looking for out of uh, what I was going to spend the vast majority of my life doing. I I, uh, I wanted to to do something. Uh, that I felt uh, was worth doing, and that uh, was meaningful. Uh, so, I turned my attention in my late 20s to um, to looking at healthcare, and I uh, wanted something where I could uh, grow with a profession that was growing, and to uh, to be doing something where I was constantly learning, and where I would be uh, constantly changing my approach. So, um, I've often said to students that if uh, I'm doing the same thing five years from now. Then, then something's probably wrong. And uh, certainly, pediatric pain, uh, complex pain, is uh, an evolving and changing field. So that we uh, uh, we are often uh, uh, doing our very best to keep on top of the best available evidence and implement that in our practice, which uh, makes things very fun and interesting um, because that uh, landscape is changing rapidly.
1: Mm, yeah, exactly. So, did you did you specifically? pediatric pain or was that just the the opportunity arose or what kind of brought you to the pediatric pain
0: so i worked uh, my my first uh, job was actually working as a private practice uh, physiotherapist which is uh, you know a little bit more than 50% of uh, physiotherapists probably anywhere in the country but certainly in nova scotia um, of our of the physiotherapists working over half would work in a, in a private practice capacity and what I found was I was uh, I was underwhelmed with the skills that I had learned uh, and and my ability to use them to um, to help patients who are experiencing ongoing persistent complex pain. It was um, a little disheartening as a as a new graduate. I you know, sort of entered the workforce thinking I've I've got these uh, these skills and I'm going to be able to make a a big difference. And uh, the the uh, the patients who. Um, were the most complex. I seemed to be um, failing miserably uh, with the skills that I had learned, and I think that goes speaks to a lot of the training that physiotherapists have, where we're we're particularly adept at managing uh, injury, you know, and managing injury recovery. But uh, as things become more complex, it um, requires a different skill set, and I I didn't feel that I had what I needed, so. That resulted in a, you know, in a bit of a knowledge pursuit to see what, uh, you know, if if I could develop these skills, what these skills were, and uh, so I did a little training with uh, the number of individuals, uh, primarily based in Australia, who uh, were doing this work, and that changed my focus, and um, and I always had an an interest in uh, sort of adolescent athletes and adolescents, and an opportunity came up at the IDBK Health Centre and, uh, and I took it and managed to find my way from there on to the uh, Pediatric Complex Pain Team and have been there ever since. So, um, so it was, uh, I think, kind of born out of my frustration of not being able to help people who clearly needed some help. That ultimately led me here.
1: Yeah, and you know, you've got a couple of really important points there, Mike. It's interesting to me that your training, uh, a lot of your training was actually in Australia. I mean, there's been such incredible stuff that's come out of that country around complex pain and chronic pain but also you know in our training and it's interesting your your journey in in the terms of looking for more was very similar to me when i initially i started off in a nursing degree and very quickly i realized after coming out of that degree program just full of energy Really keen, wanting to be of service, that it was really disheartening, and you you knew that there had to be more, and you had to keep seeking that. So thank goodness you you kept looking for that. And but when patients, um, or even children, or anyone who's experiencing pain are uh, treated in a framework that really focuses on injury. And when that person doesn't fit into that framework, that somehow it's the patient's fault. So we start to see this frustration Mm -hmm. from the patient, as well as the fact that most of our interventions are not really... Um, showing that they're actually helping that patient, you know, have that quality of life that they deserve. So this is this is where I think our training really lets us down. I'm just wondering what your mm-hmm. thoughts are about that.
0: Well, I, I often say um, I'm fortunate we're having this conversation now because I have a student right now. So I've uh, many of the things I'm talking about here are the same things, same conversations that I have with her. And I I say to her, good diagnosis is good care, and uh, it's uh, really important that um, the clinicians any of of any stripe that mm-hmm. are receiving patients that are experiencing complex pain um, get it right out of the gates. So if the if we looked at the International Association for the Study of Pain, for example, they would talk about the need to diagnose on the basis of mechanism so we have what uh, we would call nociceptive inflammatory pain which is essentially pain that's injurious in nature and this is what uh, many people are very good at you sprain your ankle on the weekend and you need some advice or you need some medication or you need some physiotherapy um, or what have you to uh, to guide you along recovery and our bodies are particularly good at healing so you know within eight to ten weeks pretty much everybody heals um, you know, with um, with some exceptions, but uh, that's the way most pain is approached, as if it is um, injurious in nature. But there are a number of other mechanisms that um, can can cause or can be the origin, if you will, of uh, complex pain. That being neuropathic, where there may actually be damage to a nerve, and then the new uh, uh, International Association for the Study of Pain term, which is nociceplastic. And noceoplastic pain, you know, essentially is a, a change in the signaling system, a change in the nervous system. It's almost like the volume has been turned up. Mm-hmm. And what I often say uh, is that if we are approaching a, for example, a noceoplastic pain problem, where it is really a nervous system signaling problem and a brain-based interpretation problem, if we are approaching that type of pain as if it were an injury, then we're kind. Of, it's kind of like trying to saw through a board with a hammer. we're using the wrong tools. Mm -hmm. So then it doesn't work. And then if it doesn't work, that creates doubt in the mind of the patient, creates frustration um, in the mind of the uh, clinician who is working with that patient. And you're right, oftentimes, uh, I think in healthcare, we've done a um, uh, a particularly good job, sadly, at placing our inadequacies squarely on the shoulders of our patients. Mm -hmm. So we need to shift from that. And if we were to get... Diagnosis right from the outset, then we could uh, intervene with the best available evidence based on that presenting mechanism.
1: Absolutely. So coming back, to, so I know that most of the the the, the children that you're seeing, Mike. Are coming to you with that persistent pain syndrome, but if you think mm-hmm. back to your initial uh, training uh, when you were seeing patients with acute pain as well, so that initial—I uh, like to think of it—I this this wonderful concept around you know first hit or priming the nervous system yes. when kids, yes. and then you get into that second hit, which is really what contributes. It's called the you know that I often refer to that as the disruptive pain experience. So you get the nervous system gets primed. That's the first hit, Mm -hmm. so whatever that exposure... I mean, any painful condition can lead to pain chronification, obviously. But that second hit is when you start to see the pain not go away. The first time it might, and... Mm -hmm. But so this is where I struggle, because I, in my environment, in the emergency room as well, is that I feel that we contribute to that first hit. Uh, and when patients are actually uh, starting to amplify or develop that persistent pain, or even if I'm starting to see some warning signs uh, where that experience, because I know it's more about how the patient is experiencing that pain rather than the mechanism itself, is at what point... Do we help the patient shift their thinking from an acute pain model to that persistent pain model? Um, do you Do you have any thoughts on that? because I, I find that we can keep patients stuck for so mm-hmm. long in that acute pain model and in that process they often developed some habits and behaviors that are obviously not going to help them but they're doing whatever the system or whatever the healthcare providers are sort of suggesting to them you know get out there walk twice a day you know 15 minutes twice a day and you know and i know that for patients with persistent pain that can actually set them up for failure uh, rather than actually yes. set them up for success but i'm just curious where where you think we should be starting to make these shifts at what point do we help patients shift away from that acute pain model of care and move them more into that that you were talking about that nociceptive plasticity, you know when yeah. you start to see that change that happens?
0: so I to answer your question, Maureen, I think that uh It depends on the presentation of the patient if we have a patient that uh, clearly is falling outside of a reasonable window of of what would be uh, uh, something that still might be related to injury so if we've got a patient who's got a you know four month or six month duration of pain and not a persistent um, uh, injurious process so not like a repetitive type strain injury or something like that then we need to start to shift the narrative, and we do that uh, by providing the patient education. And I think across healthcare pr- um, professions, uh, we often talk about education is critical to um, to that patient experience, but we don't really talk about what that is. And the, the current best evidence suggests that with patients with complex pain, we provide them um, what's called pain neurophysiology education. Some people call it therapeutic neuroscience education. And it's exactly as it sounds. It is teaching the patient about the nature of their pain experience and the factors that contribute to that. So including um, thoughts um, and um, and particular movements and um, and the, the basic physiology, if you will, of the pain experience. Uh, what's interesting is when I talk that way, often, people will say, yes, but my patients won't understand that, mm-hmm. And we don't give patients enough credit. Uh, in their ability to comprehend, uh, uh, you know, a, a, an understanding of sort of the neurophysiology of their experience. And indeed, there was a, a study in 2003 where patients were provided pain neurophysiology education and explanation of what it is and how pain how pain works and what patients were, were experiencing. And uh, then they were offered a test on their knowledge of pain neuroscience. Their family doctors were also offered a test, and the patients actually scored better. <laughs> so indeed, patients can understand the nature of, of the yeah. pain experience. We just need to provide uh, the information to them in a way that is relevant and meaningful to them. So uh, I often say we not, we're not providing patients a pain story. We're providing them their pain story. So yeah. That requires us listening to their experience, and then reflecting that back in the context of what we know from, from pain mechanisms. This is foundational to the pain experience. So when we look at patients with complex pain, I'll look at it from a from a physiotherapy perspective, where we, we want patients to start to move. And if patients are afraid to move because they think that something is still injured or something is still damaged, and we're asking them to move anyway, then what we've asked them to do is counter intuitive to the nature of their experience. So, of course, that leads to lower adherence. And then we think, well, that patient's just not adhering to what I've asked them to do. But it's born out of fear. So, our role at the outset is to try to manage that fear of movement, manage that fear that something is still wrong. And if we can take that away, then we can start to move that patient towards movement. Similarly, uh, from a physician perspective if we were to look at some of the the major classes of medications that are offered to patients with neuropathic or nociceoplastic pain it would be uh, the anticonvulsant class like gabapentin or pregabalin or uh, the tricyclic antidepressant class so um, amitriptyline or nortriptyline so if we offer those medications for example to a patient and we haven't provided them an explanation of of what their pain experience is then what they see is that we're giving them drugs that they give to people for epilepsy or for depression. That's a good point. <laughs> so so, so then, you know, and in some patients, they would see that as a physician's backwards attempt to try to address mental health by giving them an antidepressant, even though um, I'm a physiotherapist, but even though I know that that's not the intent of prescribing amitriptyline to that patient. So it's important that we understand that. And then the The icing on the cake is, uh, when those things aren't working, we offer them psychology, which if we haven't explained the pain mechanism to the patient, um, they just think we are offering them psychology because we think that this is in their head. Mm. So you can see the whole system of intervention fails yeah. if we haven't established a firm foundation of understanding.
1: Absolutely. I always talk to, when I'm I'm having a conversation with some of my colleagues, I say the most important skill we can have are really the talking points. It's not so much about the pharmacology in most patients. It's, one, how we validate that suffering and how we create an environment of safety. And it just legitimizes and, and it helps to build trust. It, it's just such an important part of that. And so, yeah, you described it so beautifully. Yeah. And- yeah,
0: and I would pick up on that to say that perhaps even uh, before a pain education, although through pain education, I think you would establish this with your patient, it is about belief, mm. and that's a hard one for people because yeah. we're talking about an invisible condition, right? The, yeah. These patients don't arrive with a cast or the, you know, or an IV pole or uh, or anything that would be a uh, an indicator, an outward indicator of some sort of illness. It's an invisible condition. And what I would say is this, and and I'm I'm borrowing this from a foreword I read in the textbook called uh, Pain, a textbook for therapists. And I cannot remember, I wish I could, the uh, the person who wrote this uh, was a nurse. And she essentially wrote um, that in treating pain, we have have a couple of decisions. We can choose to believe our patients,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: um, choose to believe everyone, or we can choose to not believe everyone. It's really one or the other. And if we choose to believe everyone we're probably going to be fooled by some people, right? We're probably going to be fooled by some people, and I think in particular the physician, for the physicians that are listening, probably going to be fooled by some people who are, you know, drug-seeking or all the things that people, people worry about, looking to, to malingering, trying to get out of work or whatever. Probably we'll be fooled by a few, but that's rare.
1: Yeah.
0: But if we believe everyone, we will never fail to provide care to someone who needs it. If we disbelieve, if we disbelieve everybody, we treat everybody like they're potentially faking or drug-seeking or something like that, then you know what? We're going to catch those people. But we are also going to deny care to someone who actually needed it. So the question is, is how would you rather be wrong? What I say is that it starts with belief. It starts with saying to the patient and being very explicit, I believe you. I know you wouldn't be here if you didn't have pain. And we, um, we say in our clinic, we look for the shoulder sign, the shoulder drop sign when we say that. And it is that the patients come in with their, they're very anxious and and very stressed because this is yet another clinician in their journey towards trying to, to get better. And they often have their shoulders up near their ears. They're very, very tense. And we say, we believe you and we see them start to relax. And then we have a therapeutic opportunity because we often are the first people that have said that. If we could do that, you know, in in primary care, if we do that at the outset, just think of how much better things would be.
1: Absolutely. And, and you know, I think the misperception, it's kind of interesting for me uh, looking at it from a medical perspective, because I always used to come at these situations thinking that they want something from me. They want, you know, they want an opiate. And I would always go to these high-risk medications and a, the thought of having conflict, you know, sort of getting into those kinds of discussions with patients. And and when I started doing this work, I realized that is not what people, people want our time to start off with. Yes. But the, yeah. But the most important thing that i I can do it you know by by acknowledging their suffering it doesn't necessarily mean I have to medicate them it just means mm-hmm. that I acknowledge their suffering that this is this is something that is unique to them and that there no one can understand what what the patient is feeling only themselves and it's just so so important the other piece of this and it was kind of interesting for me when you start to so I love doing these kinds of podcasts. I love picking the brains of people like you mm-hmm. <laughs> to start off with but it's also when you start digging into to the literature and you know there were three things that popped out and, I, and I'll, I'll be interested to see what your thoughts are on this Mike but one is is that when we start to look at predictors of who is going to be at risk for because obviously that pain experience is subjective right it belongs to that patient mm-hmm. we just sort of mentioned that but when they're coming from us to coming to us from a place of fear or uncertainty or a heightened anxiety or this is the worst possible you know this means something really terrible so we talk about uh, worst case scenario kind of thinking. Um, Those are things that are really important that we have to acknowledge as well. We don't want to minimize them. We don't want to say, Mm -hmm. get over it, people. This is real for them. It doesn't matter if that mechanism was very, very mild. So I always think about the... um the 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 patient who came into the emergency room one time, just a young woman, and she was in excruciating pain. She was sitting in a wheelchair. We were trying to figure out what was going on, so you know, so the nurses could triage her and everything. And I remember sitting down with her, and uh, so that was the the most important thing first is you got to sit and and just be able to hear and listen to what they're saying. And as we went through it, and, you know, and I was able to kind of, uh, you know, let her, me examine her and things. It started to come out that there was a tremendous amount of fear around a particular problem that she was dealing with physically. And she was concerned that this, this the her worst possible scenario had hap- actually happened. And so when we kind of worked with her through that and sort of reinforced some of the information that we had around, well, this is actually not what's happening, but here what here's what could be happening. I mean, her whole affect changed. I mean, she was able to sit up. So that powerful piece about the uncertainty and, and the impact and the meaning of what that pain has for that patient is incredibly important. I mean I still need to as a physician, uh, as you do as a physiotherapist to make sure that there's nothing new going on because sometimes it can be really challenging sort of examining patients who live with persistent pain but and I do have to examine them um, but it was just it was so, eye-opening for me to actually see her then walk out of the department, and there was no medication that changed between the two of us. It was a discussion that happened. So I just, yeah, Yeah.
0: it was crazy. We we certainly see that too, where we, if we can, in that foundation of understanding, help the patient and and acknowledge the the worry and acknowledge um, the anxiety or the stress that's associated with that painful presentation, but but to help the patient understand the the nature of what it is they're experiencing... Mm -hmm patients yeah. are more apt to step in and do things i think the majority of patients that i see want to get back to whatever participation is for them in their respective community yeah. and if we can you know offer them a, you know a bit of a bridge to get back there through knowledge that is yeah. particularly helpful and, and and probably the most important thing we do and in that you are um and I, I said early on, we are trying to tell the patient their pain story, not a pain story. Yeah. And when we do that, I think that is a powerful way to build therapeutic relationship, that the, the person that does that can be the first clinician to really demonstrate an understanding of the the patient that's sitting in front of them, and that is very
1: powerful. Yeah. The empathy piece is just such a powerful tool as uh-huh. well in our in the work that we do. Um, yeah. So I'm going to just ask this. I don't obviously want you to close, disclose any of your clients or anything because of privacy, but mm-hmm. what is the youngest age that you've seen in, uh, where persistent pain exists? Because we don't think of persistent pain in kids, but, I mean, we have seen that uh, through our emergency room, and it's qu- quite... Quite amazing to me when we see uh, persistent pain in kids. But what's the youngest age that you've either read about or, or have seen yourself?
0: I think uh, I mean it really depends. We have certain um, um, some kids who, um, by virtue of um, uh, treatment for cancer, let's say, yeah. um, at a very young age, could have persistent pain. Yeah. Then, um, Christine neuropathies or things like that, for example, um, in our in our complex pain clinic, as I mentioned, I think at the outset. It's primarily teenagers that we do see, uh, but we do see uh, the occasional, um, you know, three-year-old, four-year-old, five-year-old in our clinic, wow. definitely. Yeah. So, um, but it's, that would be more the uh, um, the exception than the rule. Typically, it is, uh, uh, you know, a teenager probably between sort of 13 and 16 that wow. we're, we're seeing. Yeah.
1: Yeah, interesting. So when I think about uh, pediatric medicine, um, obviously, uh, the parents are incredibly important. What has been your experience around uh, sort of working with parents of children who are living with persistent pain? And would you have any advice? Uh, because often I, I think about the environment that I'm in and, and people are in crisis when they show up at the emergency room. It's very different when I'm in the clinic, right? So you feel like you can have that conversation. Uh, yeah. but, but what kind of advice would you give healthcare providers uh, who are working with uh, parents of children who are living with persistent pain, especially in that early diagnostic process when they're in that kind of spiral?
0: You know, I would I would say here at the IDPK we treat the family, so we we um, embark upon uh, um, what we call family-centered care, and uh, uh, the the family is uh, critical to the the overall management of the patient. It is a family unit that we are treating, and I mean it does come back to ensuring that the patients understand or the parents understand rather uh, the um, the nature of what their child is experiencing. Most people who have experienced pain have experienced pain because they have ripped or torn or broken something, as -hmm. we say, you know, most people have had a sprained ankle and some people have had a fracture and they can appreciate that that those things generally carry pain with them. When we have a patient that doesn't have that, doesn't have that mechanism of injury or precipitating event, it's often very hard for for parents. and, um, And sometimes they can struggle with believing Mm, their child, yeah. wondering yeah. whether there is some sort of secondary gain or something like that. So oftentimes our work, uh, certainly our work with pain education is not not with the child ever alone, it's with the family as well. And I often start any of those sessions by saying first to the to the to the teenager, what are your questions? Because I know they have some. Mm. And then I will weave my education into the answers to their questions and then when i'm done i say to the teenager can i ask your parents if they have any And they always say yes and then i ask the parents what are your questions and then i try to answer their questions as well because we have a very small contact with those patients the parents are with them all the time and if we can, you know, empower the parents with knowledge to be able to, um, to, to help them in, you know, the management of flare-ups and the management of, of, um, of uncertainty and anxiety and stress related to pain, then we have a powerful ally in, uh, in the way forward
1: yeah so the other area that we see struggling a lot is around so parents will bring their uh, their child to the emergency room and they're angry because the kid keeps missing a lot of school.
0: Return to school or, or school participation if you will is um, is uh, very similar in, in many ways to return to work. Um, school is the primary occupation often for uh, for a teenager, so it's something we need we need to uh, uh, be clearly focused on. What I think is critical there is that we involve all the, the stakeholders, all the team members in uh, in the decision making about how a student will return to school and also try to identify if there are any other barriers to return to school. Mm-hmm. We sometimes see that students who have been out of school because of their persistent pain are often subject to bullying oh, okay. and, yeah. um, uh, and and sometimes bullying simply because they're no longer there. So. Um, uh, so, And with social media, as we all know, um, uh, bullying is not something that just happens when you're in school, it can happen 24-7. So um, it's really important to uh, determine if there is um, a contributor, for example, like bullying, or if there are some stress um, um, and anxiety responses to school attendance for uh, other reasons that we might be able to manage with, uh, with a psychologist or other mental health provider. But I do think what's critical is uh, communicating with the school and uh, our experience is that most you know, schools are interested in having their students there. They, uh, Their job is to try to find a way to provide an education um, for each and every student and they want to do that. Mm. So if we can involve them early in the conversations about how we might, for example, structure a graded return to school, much like a graded return to work. Um, is it possible that the student can have um, some work sent home, but agree to attend school in a uh, in a part-time way, gradually increasing that time as they can? So, it's very individual, yeah. uh, between uh, um, between patients. Um, it is we feel important for for students to be in school for many reasons, not the least of which the social element and being able to be around your friends. if you If you are a teenager and you are uh, no longer present, um you're often um, um, you're quickly forgotten about in the mind of other adolescents. so yeah. we we want students to be back and engaging in the areas of their lives that are important. But we need to make sure that we are considering the individual needs and individual factors uh, of each and every patient that might influence their ability to return to school and then ensure that we have the partners we need around the table To make a good decision. I'm a physiotherapist. Uh, The Canadian Physiotherapy Association would say I'm a specialist in movement. I am not a specialist in education. I need the specialists in education around the table to work on how we would develop a good plan for Um, for return um, to uh, meet the academic goals that are required of of that particular student.
1: I always think of a lot of these behaviors that we see where you have disconnection. In some ways, it's how the brain is trying to find calm in a predictable way. So I think about adults Mm -hmm. more. I don't do a lot of pediatric, but... You know, part of that chronic pain spiral that you see is that, you know, uh, that individual is doing what they can sort of to do to get moving again. Because mo- the whole goal in the life of a child is to play and be active, right? It's to, mm-hmm. to be interacting, to be to be having that social group. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times some of the behavior can be more about how they're finding calm in a predictable way. And a lot of uncertainty going into school, you know, are they going to make me go to gym? Are they going to, you know, all these things that can flare up, uh, even adults, can be also very scary for kids that uh, have no control over when these flare-ups are happening most times, right? Yes, so yeah. So it could be very similar. So Mike, how many kids do you guys see in a year in, in, in the IWK? So what, what kind of, and, I, and so the service area as well. So if you want to talk to us a little bit about that, what what is the service area of the IWK? In Atlanta. So the
0: IDBK has a maritime mandate so we yeah. see patients from uh, New Brunswick Prince Edward Island uh, and Nova Scotia and uh, we hold uh, two um, complex clinics a week so and we would see um, generally we see one new patient per clinic and then the other visits are rechecks of of, um, of existing patients on our caseload although once a month we generally hold a clinic where we'll have uh, two new patients yeah. So I guess that would be a uh, 10 uh, 10 new patients a month. Right. Um, is how we uh, how we would uh, would see patients. Uh so Clearly, if we look at the data around the number of children experiencing pain, even the most conservative estimates would put it at around 2%. Uh, mm-hmm. This is a f- number far larger than we are able to accommodate yeah. in our our complex pain clinic. And you know, as a as a consequence of the of the need out there, um, it really is important that uh, those in primary care and those in communities across the Maritimes have the skills that they need to be able to, uh, to manage it at a local level. Uh, it's, we're, we're simply never going to be able to, to um, tackle the, uh, uh, the, the magnitude of the problem right. through a complex clinic at a place like the IDPK or any, or any tertiary health center for that matter. Mm-hmm. There was a recent study in Ontario uh, that looked at uh, the, uh, the um, prevalence of pain and it was uh, around 6% of school-age kids. You know, and if you think, um, uh, you know, they're they're. I'm not sure of the, of the population of adolescents or population of kids under 18 in the Maritimes, but I think it's around 400,000. You know, we'd be talking about, um, you know, yeah. 24,000 kids.
1: That is crazy. If
0: you were to apply that, well, you know, which is which would have yeah. pain that is. Um, you know, persistent and frequent, yeah. lasting longer than three months.
1: Yeah, and, So, and, uh, yeah. you
0: know, I mean, it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big number. And when we put that out there, people say, oh, no, 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 it's not that many. Mm-hmm. But we do have lots of kids who are experiencing headaches and abdominal pain and back pain. Those are the, sort of the big three
1: exactly. um,
0: diagnoses. And then there are more um, complex yeah. um, pain presentations.
1: And they grow up? To be adults, so I mean, how we address it in yeah. pediatric. I mean, it 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 always astounds me that um, you have a an experience uh, w- which touches every area of healthcare. There's not one area of healthcare that you will not see a pain experience, but you will also also see persistent pain. There's nowhere in healthcare where you will not see persistent pain, and how how little training we actually get to not only understand this very complex condition, but also how we work with patients and, and families who are trying to find their way through this very complex process. And very easy to keep them stuck on these treadmills of investigation, you know, exposure, not moving forward, feeling like they're failing, just kind of going down that, that rabbit hole. Um, Mike, do you do any? I'm just asking this question out there, but do you, do you are you involved at all in any research with your with your area? So I know your guys are doing a ton of stuff. I'm really looking yeah. forward to uh, picking yeah. the brains of some of your colleagues there as well, especially in around uh, pediatric pain and and sort of some of the behaviors and stuff that we can do to help.
0: The IWK is a is a. Uh, um I would say a sort of research powerhouse in uh, pediatric pain. Uh, we have uh, people like Christine Chambers, who is mm-hmm. uh, a psychologist, Dr. Christine Chambers, and she um, has uh, what's called It Doesn't Have to Hurt, which is about procedural pain management, um, excellent resources for families, and she's trying to to uh, mobilize the the current best evidence um, so that it is in the hands of of patients and families. Um, which is often uh, not the way things have been done. Um, we try to get research in the hands of clinicians, but Christine has uh, done a, just a brilliant job of trying to bring that evidence to, to where it is really needed, and that is into the, to the hands of parents uh, and, uh, and patients. And uh, also, Christine has recently um, started what's called SKIP, which is Solutions for Kids in Pain, uh, which is, a, a, you know, a, again, a group that is seeking to... Um, to be a knowledge mobilizer for the best available evidence, to get evidence into the hands of people that need it, so that we can improve pain care, um, and that is uh, uh, really a national initiative. Um, certainly, we'll have regional implications here for our, for the the Maritimes, where um, uh, you know partners will be um, uh, will, will have the opportunity to have the best available evidence at their fingertips through that through that four-year initiative, which will be. Uh, be a, you know, an amazing opportunity, and there are other uh, pockets of uh, research here that are happening. Uh, just some fantastic work, um, Marcia Campbell-Yo in the in the NICU, uh, here at the IDBK, um, and others. Um, so I I'm a clinician. Uh, I don't. Uh, really participate, um, you know, actively as a, as a uh, principal investigator in, uh, um, in research in pain. I, I do find myself lucky enough sometimes to be able to participate in some of the great work that these, you know, extremely skilled researchers like uh, Christine and Marcia, for example, are uh, are doing and um, uh, it's a re- real pleasure to be a part of that. Yeah. Um, but. Uh, um, but my my role is primarily in a
1: clinical way. i I, I dream to be a researcher, but I know I'm not yeah. <laughs> we can't. so i I love. Um Love Not enough, enough hours in a day, that's what I Well, think. that's I true, too. But, you know, <laughs> yeah. you, you, there are always these questions that pop out that you'd love to be able to answer, you know, and look at the research. Or you see some trends or anecdotal stuff in your practice, and you think, oh, my goodness, somebody's got to show that this is actually happening. So we see that yeah. a lot in, in, in the adult. But, yeah, I, I'm so impressed with the kind of work that your institution is doing and the good people that are there. I'm just wondering, what is the process of, uh if, if yep. you have somebody out there who's listening and saying, okay, well, you know, I have a practice. Here I have a patient that I'm very concerned about. What is the process of referral, and what can you expect in terms of length of time? And are there resources that you would direct healthcare providers to, so that they, that your uh, the, the patient or the client can start looking at like sh- making that shift in their thinking from acute pain to that chronic pain model, that they can mm-hmm. start looking at things a little bit differently? I, I don't know if you have any advice around there.
0: There are some. Uh, um uh, resources, I think, that uh, would be helpful to to all um, all clinicians, so um, physicians, physiotherapists, psychologists, nurses, others um, that that exist that are freely available. So the the place to uh, to begin would be the International Association for the Study of Pain. Uh, there are um, uh, lots of resources uh, through their website um, that, uh, and they really are the the experts, if you will, in uh, in how we need to move forward. Uh, there also is, uh, out of SickKids in Toronto, there is an online pediatric pain curriculum, uh, which uh, is freely available probably through the IASP site, uh, but certainly one could uh, could Google that, and that uh, it provides a, a modular-based training for uh, for clinicians, and we've had several thousand people go through that, um, mm-hmm. that training uh, um, all across the world.
1: Yeah.
0: Oh, so that's an excellent, excellent resource. Maybe we
1: can put a link to the web page uh, to that. Yeah, I can,
0: I can, I can, I certainly can send you that. Yeah. Uh,
1: so if the, you could do that, that would be uh, awesome. So uh, people uh, want the... to click into the. Just have to find them. Yeah. And.
0: Um, uh, those but those particular resources that are freely available are good from a uh, from a clinician knowledge perspective. There are a number of other um, uh, patient uh, specific links and uh, resources that can be provided. Um, the quality of those, as you know, with anything in uh, that that you find on the internet, we have to be very careful about. But there are some that um, are excellent. Uh, mm-hmm. A colleague of, of ours at Stanford recently did a um, systematic review of pain education videos that are available on YouTube, Okay. and so that uh, that paper is available, oh, okay. but uh, the long and short of it is, uh, you know, based on sort of the elements of a good uh, pain education, uh, there is a video done by uh, Lorimer Mosley, who is a, a PhD physiotherapist in Australia. Um, and it's called "Tame the Beast." Mm. So, uh, if, uh, if people are interested in that, I certainly can send you the link to that. Yeah,
1: to, I've to seen worry. that. Actually, it's very good. Um, that yep.
0: apparently is the is deemed the uh, the best quality video uh, from a, from a messaging perspective. Nice. Um, yeah. So, so I, I gave you those first because I think it's important that clinicians, um, um, you know, outside of major centers, have the skills that they need to to address questions and manage things um, for their patients. Um, at home, uh, if, they, if that can uh, if that can happen first, that's a, that's a great start. Uh, and then um, accessing the services in, uh, at the IWK through the complex pain team is a simple referral.
1: And does um, it have to come from a medical uh, practitioner? or Can come from a nurse practitioner? Can uh, any come other come From service? a family doctor? Uh, okay. You know
0: what? I um, that I don't know, but a nurse practitioner. But I am certain that they could make a referral Yeah,
1: i'm pretty sure they can. um yeah.
0: i i don't know that i i, I guess I, what that's where i don't know the the full okay. scope of, yep. of the nurse practitioner um so um so i apologize for that
1: so but you would just go just, to the iwk webpage chronic pain yeah. and just look at yep. yeah okay so that's good all right well listen i'm gonna let you go and it was just absolutely wonderful to talk to you mike and uh keep up the good work it's uh so inspiring to uh to not only to hear you talk. So if anybody out there ever gets a chance to hear Mike talk, they should go. Uh, so, and because uh, it is very, very, I think the perspective that you have uh, is so important. So listen, you take care and hopefully we'll see you around soon. Thank
0: you. It's a privilege to, uh, to be able to chat to you today. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you for joining us for this edition
0: of Pain Talk. To learn more about our podcast and to find links mentioned in today's show, please visit our website at paintalk.ca.